turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Buy tickets now at... The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. There's only one thing that can be done for an old heart. Only one thing. Repentance. To repent is the foundation of the gospel. To repent then leads into the forgiveness of our sins, the aphemy of our sins, the removal of our sins, and then we enter holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This issue of repentance is huge. This morning, Alexandra is with me, my wife. This morning, as we were at a Panera having a quick breakfast, sitting close to us, a table with four senior citizens, and I listened as they spoke one with another. All four would say that they were Christians. Their conversation was casual and light with much laughter. They spoke about football, baseball. They spoke about hockey. 
they moved casually from one sport to the next and then with equal ease after giving their opinion about different players they moved comfortably to the church and spoke about their pastors and comfortably criticized what they see happening in the church and then they comfortably moved from that to their travels and their retirement they were able to address all of the events of their life from the same casual perspective I was grieved as I listened for they spoke as outsiders looking in on all of these activities and they had their own life there is a casualness today a consumer mentality that refuses the deep gospel truth of repent of repent this is the first sermon that Jesus gave we find in the book of Matthew as he entered after the temptation of the wilderness his message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and then in the early church there was a bitter conflict over the question of a second repentance this seems like a strange issue to be talking about but it is a vital concern if we are to begin to understand the primitive godly new testament church our faith in christ is dramatically different today than theirs and we see the resultant emptiness and shallowness of the modern church that has no power to change the culture and our cry is that we would understand these things that we would once more be able to touch the modern culture and cause a revival to take place a revival of godliness of holiness. So Alexandra has done a great deal of research on this. I'm going to ask her to present for us what she has found regarding this question of a second repentance. Thank you. So I began this study because I've noticed as I've spoken to Christians, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox Christians, that there's a lot of confusion on the subject of repentance. So I've spoken to some people who say, well, I repented 20 years ago. I don't need to repent again. But they're living a life of sin. And then I've also spoken to other Christians who say, well, I repent every day. We all sin every day. Nobody's perfect. And they do indeed live in sin. So both of these are false understandings of repentance. So to better understand what repentance is and what repentance is not, I began to look at a debate that occurred around 200 AD in the early church. And this debate was on the subject of what was called second repentance. So to establish the context, before the second century, the early church believed and taught that there was only one repentance. So they believed that when you were, when you were baptized, that it was because you had already repented, your sins were forgiven, your old life was completely put away, 
and you became a new person and that after that you had to continue to the end to be saved. So some scriptures that support this view, we have Ezekiel 33:18, when the righteous turneth from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, he shall even die thereby. So in this passage we have someone who is living a righteous life. His his or her actions are actually righteous. He turns away to sin and ends up dying in his sin. He is not saved. Um, some of the more stark passages that deal with this are found in the book of Hebrews. So, for example, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. The writer of Hebrews says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. So this passage is saying, this is a person who has repented, has been enlightened, has received the Holy Spirit. This is someone who's truly been born again and converted. He's saying, if they shall fall away, if they shall deny the faith, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. This idea occurs again later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Clement of Alexandria actually wrote on this passage that I just read from Hebrews. And he says, this is around 150 AD, but continual and successive repentings for sins differ nothing from the case of those who've not believed at all. In other words, if you sin and repent and sin and repent and sin and repent, it's not any different from someone who's never believed. He says, except only in their consciousness that they do sin. And I know not which of the two is worse, whether the case of a man who sins knowingly or of one who after having repented of his sins transgresses again. For in the process of proof, sin appears on each side. The sin which in its commission is condemned by the worker of iniquity, and that of the man who foreseeing what is about to be done, yet puts his hand to it as wickedness. And he who perchance gratifies himself in anger and pleasure, gratifies himself in he knows what. And he who repenting of that in which he gratified himself by rushing again into pleasure, is near neighbor to him who has sinned willfully at first. For one who does again that of which he has repented, and condemning what he does, performs it willingly. He then, who from among the Gentiles, and from that old life, has betaken himself to faith, has obtained forgiveness of sins once. But he who has sinned after this, on his repentance, though he obtain pardon, ought to fear, as one no longer washed to the forgiveness of sins. For not only must the idols which he formerly held as gods, but the works also of his former life, 
be abandoned by him who has been born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but in the spirit, which consists in repenting by not giving way to the same fault. For frequent repentance and readiness to change easily from want of training is the practice of sin again. The frequent asking of forgiveness, then, for those things in which we often transgress is the semblance of repentance, not repentance itself. So we see very clearly this idea that repentance is something that you do once, and it is, like it says in Romans 6, it's when you die unto sin once. And your new life that you now live, you live in holiness before God. Ignatius, or rather, this is the shepherd of Hermas. He says, You have heard correctly, for that is so. For he who has received the remission of sin ought never to sin again, but to live in purity. So the idea of second repentance of there being a second chance for someone who became a Christian and then went back to sin to then rejoin the church only emerged in the second century. And the reason why it emerged is interesting. So Christians were going through really heavy persecution and they would recant. So let's say someone was holding a hot iron to their face and said, I want you to deny Jesus or I'm going to put this on your face and burn your face and then kill you. Well, some people denied Christ under these circumstances. And then after the persecution passed, the bishop of the church would suddenly find dozens or even hundreds of these believers coming back and wanting to be readmitted to the church. And now understand, not everyone denied Christ. So you had some people who said, no, I'm not going to deny Christ. And they actually died. And then there were these, they were called lapsed believers, who were people who did deny Jesus and then wanted to be readmitted. And it's useful to remember the passage from the New Testament when Jesus says, he that denies me before men him will I deny before the Father. So they took this very literally. They really believed that if they denied Jesus under these threats, that they would not be saved. So lapsed believers were not allowed to, to take communion or enter into the main church meeting, but they had to sit in an outside room or even outside the building or house. So they were allowed to listen, but they couldn't participate in the meeting. Some of them never tried to come back because they felt that they were beyond forgiveness, and others just didn't want to come back. In North Africa, according to Tertullian in his work on purity, lapsed believers would dress in rags to show their penance, lay prostrate in the outer foyer where the elders would enter, and beg for prayer and forgiveness. Following 1 John 5, 16 and 17, the elders were not to speak or even pray for such penitence, but were to let them continue in penance until the Lord somehow showed his mercy to them. Some of these lapsed believers would eventually give up, figuring they had lost their souls. Others would spend months, maybe years in this condition, hoping that God would accept them when they died. So, the idea of a second repentance really began to emerge in a work called The Shepherd of Hermas. So this was a popular text 
throughout the early church. Some considered it scripture, some did not. It's still, even today, considered a significant work from the early church. So this is one excerpt from that text. It states, I have heard from certain teachers that there is no other repentance beyond that which occurred when we descended into the water and received forgiveness of our previous sins. He said to me, You've heard correctly, for so it is. For the one who has received forgiveness of sins ought never to sin again, but to live in purity. But the Lord, however, who is exceedingly merciful, had mercy on his creation and established this opportunity for repentance. But I'm warning you, he said, if after this great and holy call, anyone is tempted by the devil and sins, he has one opportunity for repentance. But if he sins repeatedly and repents, it is of no use for such a person, for he will scarcely live. So this was a second but only once repentance for apostasy, for someone who denied the faith. A person who repeatedly sinned and repented, the text says, would scarcely live. In other words, there was basically no hope of salvation for such a person. At this point, it's worth mentioning in the second century, it's sometimes called a rigorist stance on sin. It's the belief that we have to be perfect to enter heaven. So this was still prevailing, this belief. There wasn't an idea that our good would somehow outweigh our bad, but there was a belief that we had to have a perfectly clean slate and a clean page when we die to enter heaven. So as we think about this, it raises the question of why did the church for 200 years allow themselves to suffer such intense persecution? And I think a big part of this is because they actually believed that there was only one repentance. So the earliest Christians believed, first, that they had to be completely sinless and pure to enter heaven, and second, that they, once they had repented and become Christians, been baptized, joined the church, given up their old life, that if they were to fall away, there was no second chance for them. So that's why they were able to die what we perceive as these apparently heroic deaths. So let me read for an example of what some of these people went through. So the first major persecution of Christians took place under the Emperor Nero in AD 67. This is from the Fox's Book of the Martyrs. He writes, Nero even refined upon cruelty and contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some sewed up in skins of wild beasts and then worried by dogs until they died. And others, other Christians, dressed in shirts made stiff with wax, fixed to trees, and set on fire in his gardens at night in order to illuminate them. This persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire, but it rather increased than diminished the spirit of Christianity. It was under this persecution that St. Paul and St. Peter were martyred. In AD 162, there was what's considered the fourth major persecution of Christians by Marcus Aurelius. He says, He was a man of nature more stern and severe, and although in study of philosophy and civil government no less commendable, he was sharp and fierce towards Christians. 
The cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the intrepidity of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns, nails, sharp sharp shells, etc., upon their points. Others were scourged until their sinews and veins lay bare. And after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were destroyed by the most terrible deaths. Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, hearing that persons were seeking for him, escaped, but was discovered by a child. After feasting with the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour of prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned, and burnt in the marketplace. The proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king, who hath saved me? At the stake to which he was only tied, and not nailed as usual, he was assured that he would be immovable. The flames began to kindle the wood, but they encircled his body like an arch without touching him, so that the executioner ordered Polycarp to be pierced with a sword, and so much blood flowed out of his side that it extinguished the fire. But his body, at the instigation of the enemies of the gospel, especially Jews, was ordered to be consumed in the fire. The request of his friends, who wished to give him a Christian burial, were rejected. Nevertheless, the Christians collected his bones and as much of his remains as possible and caused them to be decently interred. So these people believed that they could not deny Jesus and then come back to the church. They believed that once they left their life of sin, they could never go back to sin again and expect to be saved. Jesus said something like this when he said, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's better to enter eternal life blind than to have both eyes and be cast into hell fire. So that's another element of this that I wanted to look at, which is that these early Christians believed in a literal bodily punishment that they would suffer for their sins and for denying Jesus. So I'll look at just a few passages from the early church of what they believed about hell. So this is from... Second Clement, it was a letter written to the Corinthian church in 150 AD. He writes, But when they see how those who have sinned and who have denied Jesus by their words or by their deeds are punished with terrible torture and unquenchable fire, the righteous who have done good and who have endured tortures and have hated the luxuries of life will give glory to their God, saying, There shall be no hope for him that has served God with all his heart. So here again we see the idea that if you deny Jesus in your words or in your actions, 
you will face terrible torture and unquenchable fire. But if you endure torture now for your faith, you will enter eternal life. Justin Martyr, writing about the same time, he says, No more is it possible for the evildoer, the avaricious, and the treacherous to hide from God than it is for the virtuous. Every man will receive the etern eternal punishment or reward which his actions deserve. Remember, we're judged by our actions. We're judged by our works. There's no covering, but we're judged by what we've actually done. Justin Martyr continues, Indeed, if all men recognize this, no one would choose evil even for a short time, knowing that he would incur the eternal sentence of fire. On the contrary, he would take every means to control himself and adorn himself in virtue, so that he might obtain the good gifts of God and escape the punishments. Polycarp, who I just read his martyrdom, he said, Fixing their minds on the grace of Christ, the martyrs despised worldly tortures and purchased eternal life with but a single hour. To them the fire of their cruel torturers was cold. They kept before their eyes their escape from the eternal and unquenchable fire. That's because these people were actually being burned at the stake, and they chose to look at it as saying, this one hour that I'm spending being burned alive is small compared to if I were to deny Christ and spend an eternity burning in fire. In 177 AD, Athenagoras says, We Christians are persuaded that when we're removed from this present life, we shall live another life, better than the present one. Then we shall abide near God and with God changeless and free from suffering in the soul, or if we fall with the rest of mankind, a worse one, and in fire. For God has not made us as sheep or beasts of burden, a mere incidental work that we should perish and be annihilated. This one is more colorful. This is Hippolytus writing in 212 AD, and you'll recognize he's referring to Isaiah 66:24 and also some of the words of Jesus. He says, standing before Christ's judgment, all of them, men, angels, and demons, crying out in one voice, shall say, just is your judgment. And the righteousness of that cry will be apparent, and the recompense me to each. To those who have done well, everlasting enjoyment shall be given, while to the lovers of evil shall be given eternal punishment. The unquenchable and unending fire awaits these latter, and a certain fiery worm which does not die and which does not waste the body, but continually bursts forth from the body with unceasing pain. No sleep will give them rest, no night will soothe them, no death will deliver them from punishment, no appeal of interceding friends will profit them. Minutius Felix writes that there is no measure or end to the torments, that there's a clever fire that burns the limbs and restores them, wears them away and yet sustains them, just as fiery thunderbolts strike bodies but do not consume them. What's so important to recognize in this is that we're actually going to be judged in our bodies. That's what Jesus said when he said everyone who's in the graves will hear his voice and come forth to the resurrection. 
Cyril of Jerusalem talked about this idea very plainly. He says, We do nothing without the body. We blaspheme with the mouth, and with the mouth we pray. With the body we commit fornication, and with the body we keep chastity. With the hand we rob, and by the hand we bestow alms, and the rest in like manner. Since then, the body has been our minister in all things. It shall also share with us in the future the fruits of the past. So I really want you to hear this today, that let's say you go to church this Sunday, look around, and everyone who you see standing there is going to be standing before the judgment throne of God in that body. And you're going to be standing there in your body. And you're going to be judged by everything that you did in that body. And then you're going to be sentenced either to life or to death. Now, we do know that there is a new body coming, but it appears that this is sometime after this judgment happens. So I want you to really think about this. So going back to the idea of is there a second repentance? Tertullian expressed a very similar idea in his work on penitence. He says, a point I now insist upon is this, that the penance which has been revealed to us by the grace of God, which is required of us, and which brings us back to favor with the Lord, must never, once we have known and embraced it, be violated thereafter by a return to sin. So he says, once we've repented, once we've died to our sin, once we've left our sin and become a new person in Jesus, we should never violate that by returning to sin. He says, we're not baptized so that we may cease committing sin, but because we have ceased, since we are already clean of heart. For he has feared to continue sinning, lest he should not deserve to receive baptism. Grant, Lord Christ, that thy servants may know nothing of repentance, nor have any need of it after baptism. I am reluctant to make mention here of a second hope, one which is indeed the very last. For fear that entreating of a resource which yet remains in penitence, I may seem to indicate that there is still time left to sin. God grant that no one come to such a conclusion. So the shift that we start to see happening here when, with these lapsed believers coming back is the church begins to say, okay, there is one opportunity for a second repentance, but this is not an excuse for sin. And they were very concerned because... They knew that if they began to teach this, that it would be understood as saying, you don't really have to leave your sin when you're converted because, well, I can just repent a second time. So they're very against this idea. And then soon the discussion began to broaden. So initially it was, can we return to Jesus after we have denied the faith under torture or similar circumstances? But then it began to be raised, well, can we repent again if we commit adultery? So this was also very widely disputed because the idea is, why should someone who committed adultery be allowed to re-enter the church, but not someone who recanted under the threat of torture? However, in sometime between 217 and 222, Bishop Callistus of Rome did pronounce a decree that allowed bishops to absolve penitent adulterers, but it was still an only once repentance. 
that was allowed. So let's read a little bit more about what this repentance actually looked like. What's interesting as you read these early accounts is that forgiveness of sins and repentance always occurred in the context of the church. So there was no indication of a belief in what we sometimes hear today as my private or my personal relationship with Jesus. That was foreign to the early church. So if a believer committed adultery and wanted this one chance they had of second repentance, this is what that looked like. Tertullian writes, When you lead the penitent adulterer into church to beg the intercession of the brethren, place him on his knees in their midst, covered with sackcloth and ashes, in an attitude of humiliation and fear, in the presence of the widows, in the presence of the priests, moving all to tears, kissing the footprints of all, embracing the knees of all. So we see very graphically here that these early Christians had no concept that there was any salvation outside of the church. So unless the church could readmit them to the fellowship and let them partake of communion, they didn't have any hope of eternal life. And if they were to be readmitted, they had only one chance and they had to show that they meant it. That's what the sackcloth and ashes, the weeping, kissing the feet. Can you imagine walking into a church and being on your knees in front of the entire congregation and having to confess out loud what you've done, beg their forgiveness and kiss all their feet? That's what was required if you wanted to be readmitted to the church at this point after you committed adultery. It's very different than now where you can walk in to pretty much any church and say, I'm a Christian. I repented some time ago. Nobody's ever seen it. Nobody really knows whether or not you actually repented. They don't really know how you're living your life. It's not like what we see in some VBS or evangelistic crusades where everyone's invited to bow their head and then silently in their head say a sinner's prayer and that's somehow supposed to save them. We see that in the early church it was really required that there be a public repentance that was deep and profound and that was evidenced by a complete and permanent change in life with a complete cessation of all sin. So let's apply this a little bit further. So today it's not unusual to hear Christians say things like, we all sin every day, or Christians say everybody sins, or nobody's perfect. There's an idea that we can somehow have a personal relationship with Jesus while we drift from one church to another, while we only sporadically attend church, or maybe we're not even associated with a church at all, but somehow we think that we're still saved. And there's also a common defense of saying, don't judge, don't judge me, anytime that sin is addressed. So as we've just heard, this is... This totally flies in the face of how the, the early church operated in terms of repentance, in terms of salvation from sin. So what we're seeing here is that most Christians today have not actually repented. The book of Romans in chapter 6, speaking about Christ, 
it says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once, and in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And this is used as a parallel for us. In other words, when we repent, we're dying unto sin, and this happens one time. And then the rest of our life, we, we live to God. So it means that our old life is over forever. This modern excuses also, in my opinion, reveal that people aren't really believing that there is an eternal wrath of God that they will face for their actions. I suspect that many of you listening to this broadcast don't really believe in your heart that there is a hell and that if you sin even once after you repent that you should go to hell or that all of your lost family and friends will suffer flames and unquenchable pain and suffering forever and that that's actually just. A denial of what we've just read about is amounts to saying that God is not really just if we don't believe that let me put it another way if we believe that these early Christians who refused to even burn incense unto Caesar are saved and that we're saved even though we regularly you know have sex with people we're not married to and become drunk and we just put ourselves in that same category then that amounts to saying that God isn't just that he isn't a judge that he has no standard of right or wrong but our conscience objects to this we know that it's wrong for someone to pay such a high price and somebody else to pay nothing and for them to both receive eternal life some other false beliefs that are exposed by this study. We can't expect to repent privately apart from the church and be saved. We can't be saved without being part of the church. We also see true repentance really is only once, but it is a radical change of life. It's not saying I repented and then living the same life. And then the flip side, this is the same error, but it just looks different. The flip side is to still live the same life, but say, I repent every day. So in either case, there's not actually a real repentance. Repentance is not gradual. It's not working on one sin at a time. We also know from this study that you can't be born again, live a righteous life, then go back to sin and repent, and then walk clean for a little while, and then go back to sin and repent and walk clean for a little while. As it said in the Shepherd of Hermes, that life for this person is scarcely possible. It is almost impossible that you can be saved if you're doing that. You know, I take away from this study an understanding that in the New Testament church, sin was very serious. Absolutely. And that becoming a Christian was very serious it was not a consumer sport it was a serious dedication of my life and a separation from the world the flesh and the devil now where we're struggling today frankly is that we've been able to buy into the Gnostic theology 
that was existent from the very beginning in the church, the Apostle John in 1 John speaks very clearly against the Gnostic lies. The Gnostics believe that Um, yes, let's take the call. What is her name? Hello? Is anybody there? Let's take the call, Brother Kevin. Let me know when she comes on the line. But I'm on what the I'm line. trying to say is this this Gnostic belief flooded into the church origin then in one eighty five to two fifty four brought forth this whole teaching and it came in like a flood against the church. Uh, Tertullian speaking about this said there are some sins of daily committal to which we are liable. For who will be free from them using manual violence or else carelessly speaking of evil or rashly swearing or lying? How can we live in that and expect to be saved? But it was really Augustine that opened the door in the Catholic Church for this sinning Christian. And then in the Reformation, Martin Luther he said, sin as you like, provided you believe. Sin was not the big issue for him. John Calvin said, we maintain, therefore, that sin always exists in the saints till they are divested of the mortal body. This is in Institutes. But we maintain, according to the doctrine of Scripture, the only standard of righteousness and sin, that the wages of sin is death, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, but, there's, but the sin of believers are not causing death of the soul. So if you become a Christian, Calvin, John Calvin taught that you can go ahead and sin and you're going to be saved. Is the caller there? The caller is here. I, Good, I'm take the here, call. Yes. Welcome. What would you like to share? Well, I'd like to compliment you on your fabulous overview of the historical origins of the immediate post-Christian era. I am blown away by it. Um, and it's a shame that more people don't know this. Um, and I and I just want to ask you, do you have plans to take this to other venues in other churches? It's something that needs to be heard and, and needs to be stated. That's a wonderful question. We are in the process of planning Monday night revival meetings, which should begin on December 4. And we do think that this investigation into what is what is real apostolic repentance and what was primitive Christianity, that that needs to be something that we address in these meetings. I mean, I had only briefly, until I really dug into the research, I'd only briefly even heard any mention at all of this debate of second repentance. And so I was very shocked when I really started to do the research because I realized that these early believers, you know, these heroic martyrs, 
They didn't just die for their faith because they really loved Jesus. I'm sure they did. But they died for their faith because they believed that they didn't have another chance to repent. And that just totally blows away pretty much anything that I've heard from most Christians in the United States where they think, you know, God is so merciful that they can just repent over and over. Yes, it's true. I do want to ask you, um, I didn't hear the entire thing you said, but um, I came on at about one thirty. I don't know when you started, but one of the, um, I come from a Catholic background, and one of the things that um, always made me take pause was the idea that 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 the purgation or the purgatory period would be a period where there would be this paying for one's sins that were done in the body, and that um, and that if there wasn't sufficient uh, people on earth praying for you, that this would be a place where you would stay for a very very long time. Do you did you talk about this at all in, in what you just said because some saints or people who have been close to the Lord have said that the Lord said that there will be a, a reckoning uh, in the body for what happened on earth. And many Catholics and Anglicans and Episcopalians believe that that is called purgatory. I mean, C.S. Lewis even believed that. What, what do you say about that? So the earliest mention that I found of an idea like that was um, by a writer named Lactantius in 350 AD, and he believed that believers would still have some sins that would cause them to pass through the fire, but that inside yeah. of them there would be like a holy influence of God, and because their good outweighed their bad, then they wouldn't be harmed by the fire, and they would pass through it. I personally don't see this idea reflected in scripture. For example, if you read John chapter 5, Jesus says that they who have done good will receive the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil will receive the resurrection of damnation. And I believe that may actually be coming from the book of Daniel. Um, so you can look mm -hmm. at that. So it's very clear that when we repent, when we really repent, like what this broadcast has been about, that we are forgiven for our past sins. They're not going to be dragged out against us on the day of judgment. They're removed from us. But that from then on, we need to live a holy life. And there's not any guarantee of a second repentance if we are to deny the faith or go into adultery or commit any... of You know, you can read the list. Paul says liars, blasphemers, fornicators... There's very clear lists laid out in scripture and also in the book of Revelation about the types of actions that will bar us from entering heaven. So my understanding is that when we really repent and we really believe and we continue to the end, that says he that believeth to the end shall be saved, that we do not pass through a purgatory type fire at the end of our life. Mm-hmm. You, you, you sound like that. It sounds like it's that's really the, the truth there that really resonates. Um, but you know the old idea that C.S. Lewis talks about when the, uh, the the young boy dies prematurely, goes to heaven, and says, uh, is met by Saint Peter, and says, "Go on in, young young man." And he says, 
if it's all the same to you, sir, I'd like a little washing. And so that's sort of how he gives the metaphorical explanation of he doesn't feel, even though he has faith and even though he does believe in Christ, he feels as though he needs to have that purgation, that period of purgation. Um, this is something that um, I believe is supported by the early church fathers as well. Um, I, I, and right now, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very poor historian, so I can't tell you where I've heard it, but I know I, I have heard it. Um, but I do, just like any other doctrine, it's kind of gone, like you say, it's gone the way of convenience of what's, you know, expedient to daily and modern life. Even though we don't think of of Martin Luther as modern, but he really was modern in the way that he bucked tradition and bucked the authorities. Yes, he, he kind of threw off anything you know, fifteen hundred and on. It's considered the modern period. He threw off all of those old ways, and yeah, I... in some respects, he he did many good things. Absolutely, but in making the Bible available and accessible to people in the vernacular and so on and so forth. But so many important truths I think were lost during that Reformation period and I think one of them was was that we, we talked about the idea of, of a cavalier attitude towards sin that I think still permeates today so much yes I think it's key that we recognize that there isn't any further washing or any sanctification after we die it says in the book of Hebrews, it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. So if we're to be saved from sin now, it has to be at all. It has to be now. It has to be while we're alive. And yes. I, I, would, I would, agree, would agree with what you're saying. It's truth. But do you believe that, so we're talking two different things. We're talking salvation is now. It's our decision to what we make. But supposing we die... And we haven't yet, we die with unconfessed sin in our soul. Then what, what happens is the question. So I think maybe what's underlying your question is this idea that repentance is still like on a sin by sin basis, which it is. We should confess all of our sins. But fundamentally, repentance is that we are giving over our life to Jesus. And we are completely dying to all sin, to our old life. And we're starting a new life in Jesus. And that is the, the one and only repentance of the early church that we're talking about. I'm going to um, pass the mic back over to Pastor Ray because we're almost out of time. Thank you for calling. Okay. Thank you. Bless you. The prophecy of the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy, the third chapter, was, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving. He has this whole list of great wickedness. And then he says, in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. He's saying, this is what's going on at the end time church. This is the reality of our day. This casualness where we think we can live by the American standard of entrepreneurialism with the gospel. 
and we're making progress. It's simply not true. This having a form of godliness but denying its power, and I watch this go on in churches all over America as pastors stand and do not deal with the sin issue but instead encourage the people to pray and encourage the people to keep being encouraged that God is not done with them and he's going to take them through. And where's just a simple, straight confrontation with sin and saying, look, let's repent. Let's be made anew in Christ. Let's give ourselves to Jesus Christ and not to the modern world of entertainment. Well, we're almost out of time. We have two minutes left in this broadcast. The question, I guess, is will you renounce your hell-bound way of life, your intellectualism, your permissiveness? Will you make a public confession of your sin? Will you repent? And will you come to the National Prayer Chapel this Sunday prepared to deal with your sin. We meet at 12 noon. We rent space from a wonderful church, the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. The address is 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com nationalprayerchapel.com there you'll find directions time of service we begin prayer at 12 this is serious there has to be a whole new direction in the American church that's what revival will do for us it will call us out of this permissive wicked life and set our feet on that straight path of righteousness it's going to require repentance public repentance. Thank you, Alexandra, for what you've shared today. Thank you all. God bless you. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I love you. We'll talk to you soon.